Uh, just a precursor before we start the show. Um, sh- about 15, somewhere between 10 to 20 minutes. Uh, I'm not sure how this show is going to edit down uh, when, I, when I've edited in post. Um, you know, the, the sandstorms on Tatooine just interfered with our signal with our guests that we have this week. And the internet gets kind of choppy. So you hear us talk about, are you still there? Are you still there? Well, you can edit this out. Um, you know, editing out, what's going to be edit, edited out is the signal that we lost from him um, during that time period. Uh, it's just, uh, what would you guys say, maybe a minute or two that we lost him? Like yeah, that. yeah, it wasn't much. It wasn't so bad. Um, so just kind of bear with us. Uh, it's around the time period where he's talking about how he became a, an Imagineer. Um, it, the guest tonight is Mark Eads. Uh, it's a great conversation. Please stick with us. Bear through that, that brief interlude and, uh, enjoy the show. Uh, I, I think it's time to get this transmission commencing. USB microphones and headphones provided by CAD Audio. CAD Audio, expression through innovation. Do you hear that? Hear what? I'm receiving some sort of transmission. You don't hear it? No, I don't hear anything. What does it sound like? It's some sort of message and music. Music? Routed through the main system. Good idea. Routing now. Transmission commencing. This is Wookie Radio. Translated for the Wookie Affair. I like that Wookie. Bringing you news and commentary from the far reaches of the galaxy. I just assumed it's a Wookie. Let's get out of here. Ready for light speed? One, two, three! And now your hosts, Ken, Eric, and Mike. <laughs> So welcome to another episode of Wookie Radio. Um, it's Derek, Ken, myself, Mike, and we're being joined this week by, I want to say a Disney legend, because for us with Star Wars, uh, this is a man who was deeply involved in Star Tours um, when it opened originally in California, then Florida, if I remember right. Uh, it's former Disney Imagineer, Mark Eads. How you doing tonight? Hello, I am doing peachy keen. I was at Disneyland today doing Celebrate Gospel. Ah, awesome. Cool. So, I, I was afraid to put a year on when Star Tours opened. It was 1987, wasn't it? Yeah, officially it opened in 1987. We were actually, and maybe you knew this or not, but... Um, we were ready before Captain EO. We could have opened, but the studio folks decided that uh, because they were going to be, they would have been right on top of each other. Uh, you know, this was back when Michael and Frank and their people were all kind of fairly new to the Disney, particularly the theme park side. And I think part of it was they wanted to prove, hey, we can do this too. So they decided, well, we want to open Captain EO first with Michael Jackson, etc. And we held Star Tours. It actually just sat there and they, they ran it. it was great for the ops folks. They could run it and cycle it and, you know, do any training that they needed to do. But it didn't open for a while. It just sort of didn't open. We were done. Um, and that's that was the decision that was made. But uh, then they opened it and we stood a better test of time than Captain EO did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it took it took Michael Jackson's passing to bring Captain EO back 
And it still didn't not, last that long afterwards. No. <laughs> uh, internally, I have to tell you, when they finally, when I finally got my first look at the almost finished film, because they were having some issues that they thought could be saved, and um, part of it was some of the scenes weren't quite in perfect sync, the left eye and the right eye, and they said, well, what, what can we do to fix this? And I said, reshoot the scene or resync it. Oh, well, we can't do that. And I said, well, then you can't fix it. Um, then they claimed the film projectors were out of sync, so I actually brought in some uh, of our projection experts, and we set up a way to prove that, no, the film projectors weren't out of sync. It was the film, guys, and uh, they lived with it. Whatever. What are you going to do? So how how did the whole concept of Star Tours come about? Uh, what, what, what went on to negotiate with George Lucas at the well, time? Well, actually, before Star Tours, um, it was simulators. Well, uh, Randy Bright, who was my mentor and actually brought me to WED from the studio where I had worked on the Epcot project, uh, called me down to his office, and that's the way things were done back then. Just uh, I was working on American Journeys. I was the show producer and uh, overseeing that thing, which was really about the only project we had active at the time after Horizons opened. And uh, so he asked me, well, what do you know about simulators? And I said, well, I know they're used for training pilots for airlines and the military has applications and things like that. And then he goes, well, do you think they could be used in a theme park attraction? I said, probably. I don't know what kind, but why? Well, why don't you go research them and give me a report? Okay. So I went and got myself what's known as a job job number, which is the accounting term for where to charge your time when you're right. working on something, uh, which is also why overhead tends to be high at Imagineering, because some of that stuff just sort of disappears into accounting land. Um, and for, you know, a few hours a week, I would research simulators and not just on paper. And it really was paper back then, guys. There was no internet. Um, <laughs> I went, I flew up to uh, San Francisco to Pier 39, where uh, I think it was Duron, D-O-R-O-N was the company, had put in a little moving thing. It was like a four-seater thing, and they had like a film of a ride on a roller coaster on it, and it was supposed to simulate a ride on a roller coaster. I do know my back hurt after that. Um, <laughs> then um, flew an F-16, so to speak. Um, not very well, but it's easier to fly a jet. Then uh, the next thing, which was a helicopter. Uh, took me three times to get the helicopter off the ground. I never did successfully land it, and I have a lot of appreciation for people who fly helicopters. Wow. <laughs> and then um, I also uh, at about the same time, we made a trip to Daytona on a, another project. But out of that, they had a facility at General Electric at Daytona Beach at the time where they had a tank simulator mock-up, of all things. And so, you know, drove a tank around and blew things up, so to speak. Um, out of that, I wrote a memo. And they were memos back then. This was before email. So you had to actually, by then, I think we were doing them on um, a Wang word processor, okay, not a typewriter, and wrote a memo saying that basically, yes, I thought we could use simulators. Um, capacity might be an issue, but I think if we went along the path that, that there was some discussions already about working with Rediffusion on their big platform and that maybe it would be really cool. And as part of that process, because by then WED's down to about 400 people because of all the layoffs, I said, you know, wouldn't it be cool to get everybody to submit story ideas? And so a lot of people did. And so I had a lot of one paragraph story ideas from a bunch of Imagineers, some of them in the Star Wars universe, some of them elsewhere. Um, but part of my memo said, okay, it really, I said it came down and it was sort of like a branch. You have two decisions to make, or one decision, really. You need to either decide this 
experience is going to be in Tomorrowland, and it's going to be a Tomorrowland experience. So if it's a Tomorrowland experience, we admit it's a simulator and basically create a story around the fact that people can simulate flying on a jet, or maybe it's a super jet or a hyper jet or something like that. And then plan B is we can go into more of a fantasy universe like Star Wars, because we were all big Star Wars fans, and then that kind of a thing. In the course of how to use the simulators, I said, if we're going to do the Tomorrowland approach, then we can see the simulator, and that's part of the storyline to build up that, okay, it's a simulated journey, and yes, something goes wrong, a glitch gets in the system, and you don't quite fly where you're supposed to, and all that stuff. If it's not a Tomorrowland experience, if it's a Star Wars or a space-type thing, a la Flight to the Moon or Mission to Mars, then we really don't want to see the simulator. We want people to buy into the willing suspension of disbelief. Yes, I was using my film theory class training from Cal State Fullerton, and I said what would work, and, and I used an analogy of when you go to an airport, you don't really get on a plane. You think you do, and the idea is that when you go into the terminal, you see not windows looking out on the airport, these giant rear projection screens that are projecting what's going on out there in the airport, because when you actually board a plane, you go down this long, long tube, and you can't see anything, and then when you board the plane, it's just a long tube with video screens. So, so I gave out the idea that it would be good to see the vehicle if we're going into the fictional universe that we're flying on before we actually go board it, whether it be in a maintenance bay or getting in a boarding area or something like that. And that became the guide for how we would use simulators because we followed it exactly. That's why you see the Star Speeder 3000, or I guess it's a 1000 now because we're in prequel land, which makes no sense since they're using episode eight stuff. That's yeah. Um, but <laughs> oh, the idea seven was, too. yeah, uh, seven and Rogue One and whatever else. But my point is, is you see the vehicle, even though it's a mock-up, to help people ex- accept the suspension of disbelief that maybe they're getting on something to fly somewhere. And that's what we followed. So, Mark, um, what what year are we talking about that you guys were starting on trying to um, beginning design and the ideas of this? Well, the research phase was during American Journeys, which was late 83 and through parts of 84. And then, of course, in 84, the whole who owned us thing happened for a while. And then Michael and Frank were brought in and they started running the company. And there was they didn't know what to think of WED. Uh, they didn't know what to think of theme parks. And it actually ended up as a result of a memo that I I wrote based on a, a trip to uh, some of the Six Flags parks, Six Flags over Texas. I, I went on a vacation and visited a friend of mine there, and then um, he was actually my best man. And I went to Six Flags over Texas, and then a few weeks later, I went to Magic Mountain, and I talked about how they had entertainment, and we seemed to be lacking at Disneyland at the time. Anyway, somehow that got sent to Michael and Frank with a, a classic Marty Sklar red ink thing over it saying that we have all kinds of ideas. Because of my memo, Michael and Frank came over and finally paid a beyond just a courtesy visit to WED and they trotted out a bunch of ideas including the simulator and maybe one of the ideas with the simulator was the Star Wars thing from what I understand in that big meeting and my understanding is Michael and Frank loved the idea and Michael got a hold of George and eventually a deal was made um, and all of a sudden it became okay we're going to do Star Wars and at that point which was somewhere I want to say early 85 uh, we all were Randy pulled a bunch of us into a conference room down by his office and basically said, okay, we're going to do something based in the Star Wars universe. Come up with an idea. 
So we sat there and we kiboshed. That's how you did things. You got us. You got. We had storyboards around the room, blank ones, and we would throw out ideas and put them up on index cards and put them up there. And some people would kind of do quick sketches or whatever. And out of that, um, Tom Fitzgerald was ta- tapped basically, or given no choice, to uh, try to make sense of it. And out of that came an eleven-minute storyline. And uh, once you know, he handed it off to me, and I timed it, and I said, "Well, this is about eleven minutes long. I wonder how that works for." Capacity. And of course, the word was terrible. Um, but at any rate, it, it, the deal was made. And um, so somewhere in that time, we had a meeting later in 85. Once ever the deal was made, ILM was going to do the film. George was going to do his thing. And we started figuring out some of the, the issues before they came down, which was, you know, well, what about capacity? How many people is a simulator going to hold? How many could we put into Disneyland? I mean, these are questions you have to ask when you're designing an attraction. And out of that, they came back and said, okay, we could get 40 on board one and we could fit at most four at that time unless we wipe out Plaza Inn uh, or Space Mountain um, or wipe out the air, the staging area behind Main Street, which is where they do the parades. And it's also, by the way, the emergency uh, access staging area for the theme park. So you really can't touch too much of it. Right. So, um, so it was, but we had decided that that's probably where it would go because it was the biggest space available. So it came down to, okay, we, we'd have four of the simulators. So you start doing the math and they go, okay, if we have four of them, that times 40, that means 160 per cycle. And you start doing the minutes per hour math. And they really wanted us to try to get to 1600 an hour. Um, And we kind of worked it to where we said, okay, eventually, and you have to include load unload time and how long the show can be and all of that. And so our target length, including load and unload was six minutes. And that's how we started. And at that point, it was like, okay, so Tom took a machete to the uh, storyline and it, it still worked compressed down it didn't quite go to as many places because then it became well if we wanted to go to other places we would just do a new film every couple of years and then at that point it was like okay let's have a big meeting with George and his people and talk about how to get this done so George and Dennis Murin and a few others from his cr- company came down and we had a big meeting out at the Tahunga facility uh, where we could screen things and if we wanted to we could mock things up etc so we looked at a bunch of the effects reels that ILM had, and then we had the rough storyline in front of them, and we kind of had it boarded out and had a meeting after that. And, it, and here we are in just a crappy warehouse, and here's George and Dennis Muren and some of those other people. You know, and Dennis Muren's won several Academy Awards at this point, right? And uh, myself, Tom, Randy Bright, Marty Sklar, Carl Bongiorno, who was the president of WED. Uh, and that was basically it. And we sat in a circle in the middle of the screening area that we had set up and talked about how to make this project work, working with ILM, doing the film, etc. And Dennis Murin started talking through the storyline and said, yeah, we can cut to this angle, we can cut to that angle, we can cut to that angle. Now, I'm listening to this, having done research on simulators and hearing, you know, this Academy Award winner saying he could cut to different angles, and I'm realizing he, he doesn't get it. And, you know, I'm a young neophyte at that time, so I, I actually stood up and said, hold it, hold it, hold it. And I go out in the middle with all these big names, right, and say, and I'm looking right at Dennis Buren and I'm saying, you don't get it. You cannot cut to a different angle. This is a simulator, so it's as if you're on the ship and you're 
film is a window and there can be no cuts. And I just stared at Dennis. And at that point, I realized, uh oh, I may be making a <laughs> fool of myself. <laughs> but Dennis, thank God, kind of sat back and um, thought for a minute and says, holy shit, George, he's right. This is going to be hard. I said, yeah, it's got to be a continuous take from the viewer's perspective. And that was that. The next day, Randy Bright sees me in the hallway and says, are you sure we can't cut? And said, yes, absolutely. And he said, okay, that was the end of that discussion. <laughs> Now I I had heard some I had heard some rumors that um that the idea to go this route originally came from a a failed pitch idea for the black hole. So we well, went from black talked, hole to to Star Wars. Well, black hole had ideas running around with back when it was in production, etc. But once films really flop as bad as they do, that nobody even brought that up. I think some of the old Disney type people thought maybe, but. No, there was never any serious consideration after the new people came in to even think about using the black hole. Uh, it's okay. kind of like using the uh, island at the top of the world that Tony Baxter was always so fond of for Discovery Land. He would always dredge that up and everybody would just sort of sneer in derision because really, you want to do a land based on a film that's really bad? You know? <laughs> Oh, H- no. H- hence why there's no Twilight attractions. Uh, I guess. Or whatever. <laughs> no, but there is an, an Avatar one. Hey, it's going to turn out pretty damn good. <laughs> So, um, going back even before Star Tours real quick, how did you actually get into um, being an Imagineer for Disney? How does that work? I don't know how it works today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how did it work when you got into it? Uh, I was drafted. (laughs) Um, I was at, I had, you know, I went to, like a lot of us who live in Orange County, California, I went to Cal State Fullerton, which a lot of people jokingly call Cal State Disneyland, because I was working at Disneyland out of high school. I mean, right out of high school, I start working at Disneyland and I start going to college. My uh, degree was communications with an emphasis on film. And the communications degree included film, radio, TV, uh, journalism, PR. It was kind of the throw all of it into one sheepskin, I guess. One of the requirements of the degree was you had to have an internship. And so I decided, well, since I was my, I guess you would call it a minor in film, I would try uh, work up to an internship at the Disney Studios. And Carol DeKeyser, who was a Disneyland ambassador, was in one, some of the same classes as me and she had done one so she gave me all the information about who to contact and so I did an internship at the studio uh, during the summer of 78 while working at Disneyland at night and I had Monday Tuesdays off it was uh, on a grand and glorious movie they were producing at the time the Apple Dumpling Gang Rides Again <laughs> um, at any rate um, of course as I finished my degree actually in January of 79 it was like okay I want to get work in the business because you can't just go throwing scripts and say I want to be a director out here you need to get in someplace and get to know people. So I thought, well, the classic beginning is in a mailroom, so why not get into the mailroom at the studio? And that's what I did. So in the fall of 1979, uh, I, I'd gotten hired to be in the mailroom. What was good for me is it worked out as a transfer, because I was full-time at Disneyland anyway, and I had been for years. Yeah, I went to school part-time and worked there at full-time. Um, I was younger then. At any rate, um, <laughs> I started in the mailroom, and the idea of the mailroom at the studio then, is frankly, it still is in a lot 
of places is that it moves you around a lot and gives you a chance to see what you might want to do and gives people a chance to look at you. Uh, late 1980, um, I went over, I was sent over to the animation department to sub in for the guy who was the production assistant. And back then, the production assistant basically made sure the animators had pencils, paper, and turned their time cards in every week. Uh, and his name was Joe Morris, and he would always go off for four weeks and go on a hike in the late summer somewhere. They liked me so much that they uh, kept me, so I didn't go back to the mailroom. So I stayed in there. I actually helped out with the post-production of Tron for a little bit because uh-huh. for some reason uh, the old guard at the studio didn't understand it, and I went to a meeting with them, and they go, and they go, do you understand? I go, yeah, I think I know what they want. And they said, go ahead and just go set it up. And that's the way things were done at the studio back then. Well, after I'd been in there a few months, uh, Shirley Bench, who was my boss from the mailroom, comes to see me. I mean, this wasn't exactly a busy job. I'm reading The Hollywood Reporter and Daily Variety from cover to cover and the L.A. Times every day because there's not a lot to do. Admittedly, who knew back then? I mean, the people working in the animation department were, you know, the low the low end guys were Tim Burton, John Lasseter, John Musker, Brad Bird, blah, blah, blah. You, you see where I'm going. That was the right, when all right. the first CalArts guys were hired. But they weren't exactly doing the most exciting film in the world. It was The Black Cauldron. But Shirley knew I was bored and thought, well, he needs a better thing to do. And she came to see me and said, hey, I, I hear there's this opening to work on Epcot in post-production in the, in the cutting department. They need someone to answer phones and stuff like that. Why don't you go talk to, the, to Ray DeLue, who is the supposed post-production manager, and see, what, see if you guys click. We did. And so he brought me. I went over there, got another little bump in pay, and became what was known as the post-production coordinator. I sat on stage two on the lot, which is where they had all the film systems modeled up for Epcot, and we had a section basically using props to make it look like it was an office where the editors, some of the editors could work, and that's where all the film came in from all the different crews working on the Epcot films, and those of you who have been to Epcot know there's a lot of film there, oh, or at yeah. least there was, but it still is. I'm still um, about it, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I just started answering the phones and dealing with the paperwork, and I started handling the projectionists in terms of screenings and things like that, and, ran, and anyway, some stuff Stuff happened where I guess I impressed Randy Bright and Marty Sklar. And one day, Randy Bright, who was the executive producer for all the Epcot films, comes over and says, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. No, outside alone. Of course, all the assistant editors' ears pop up go, uh-oh, what's what he's done now, you know? <laughs> Basically, he asked me to take over running the post-production on the Epcot project for all the films because the manager who had hired me, frankly, wasn't doing the job. He was sitting in his office trailer sleeping all the time. So they were being nice to him because he'd had some health issues. And he said, what would it take to get you to do that? And I said, so you're not going to get rid of Ray? And he said, no. And I said, well, that means if I do what I need to do, it's going to upset the, you know, what I recognize as the old boys network at the studio. And so he goes, what will it take? Oh, I said, well, a raise. And he goes, how about $100 a week? $100 a week back then is a hell of a lot of money. Think about that. That's five grand a year. Yeah. I said, okay. And he said, what else? And by then, you know, my gears are working. And I go, well, if you do what I need to do, at the end of the project, I'm going to have a job because it's about an opportunity to come over to Wed and show you when people Mark? And carry the Magic Journey sprint. Holy, yeah. I'm here. Yeah, you froze up on us, Mark. I did? Yes, Am sir. I still here? You're still here. Um, okay, just transferred to Wed and stayed for 11 years. Still there? Hello? Still here. Still here. Oh, yeah. Hey, so, there we are. <laughs> so that's how I became an Imagineer and I stayed there for 11 years doing mostly film and video projects. Awesome. <laughs> 
Now I'd probably have to fill out 16 dozen forms and prove that I'm capable of doing stuff. I don't know. Uh, It's changed even in the time that I've been here. How to get hired with the company is it was a lot easier for me 19 years ago than if I tried to apply now. I wouldn't be surprised at that. Um, I I think because things have grown so much and over the different heads of Imagineering, um, in some ways I think it's gotten a little bit too bureaucratic in the hiring process, particularly at Imagineering, because I've I've looked at some of the job things that have been posted and go, holy shit, what the hell does all this crap mean? Have experience in this, this, and this. Well, how does anybody get that experience? You know, if they, if they have talent, then you support them with the technical stuff. If they have the technical capability, then you support them with the creative stuff, which was kind of the way WED worked. Now right. it's like, man, you have to have it all to begin with. I guess maybe because there's so many people that, have, that are working for theme park design groups out there now, which is Disney's fault. Um, maybe it works. I don't know. Anyway, next question. <laughs> I talk for a while. I'm sorry. No, no. Absolutely. No, that's great. So what exactly, uh, outside the simulators, what else did you do um, with Star Tours? I was also the casting director at that time. I had been made the casting director when Exitensio had done it, and he retired, and then they made another gentleman it, and I don't know what happened, but they suddenly decided he's not working. So I got drafted to do that. Uh, Most of it was generally doing things like bringing in B.J. Ward to re-record for the umpteenth time the safety spiels at Epcot because she was the safety spiel voice at that time. Um, and every time it turned around, it seemed like every other month, some lawyer rewrote them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the lawyers were, weren't as bad as they are now, but they were there then. Anyway, um, but we had to cast the voice of Rex. And that was a long process to find the right voice. We used a temp track for a long time to time the show. <laughs> um, we kept trying, we tried a whole lot of people, some 22 different voices. To, to, to find the right voice. Wow. Uh, we Frank Welker, who was a standby at doing different unique voices, came in. Oh, I love we Frank had Welker. Billy Barty do it because they thought maybe high-pitched, and Billy had a high-pitched voice. Had nothing to do with him being a midget. Uh, we tried, we tried BJ Ward. She tried a couple of female stretches on it. I mean, we tried a lot of different people, including some internal ones. It just wasn't working. And as part of the job, I would always go out and see movies just because, okay, to keep up. And I decided to go see Flight of the Navigator. And great movie. Well, great movie. And I'm going, who the hell is the voice of that spaceship, right? Oh, yeah. And remember, back then, Pee Wee was not very well known out of outside of the comic book, the comedian hangout places, right. the comedy, etc. Right, yeah. Yep. And I thought, well, who the hell is this person, you know? And the credits roll, and I'm watching some guy by the name of Paul Rubens. Well, who the hell is he, you know? Again, there's no internet back then, guys. So it's like, who the hell is this? So I called the consultant we had. She said, oh, yeah, I know who he is and we figured out and so we got actually got a hold of him on the set of where they were filming Pee Wee's Playhouse the TV series yeah. before the movie it, this was they were in the filming the first season of Pee Wee's Playhouse and he actually agreed to do the voice. We had to work out the terms and all that. And uh, that's how we got Pee Wee. And he came in and he recorded and we sent it up to uh, George and he said, well, actually, the way it worked out is I saw Flight of the Navigator and the next day I come in and I find Tom Fitzgerald and I said, I don't care what you're doing. I found our voice. Go see Flight of the Navigator now. And I even had the show times at the local movie theaters near Glendale. <laughs> he says, well, I've got Tom. Stop. Just go. And I said, okay, okay. So he went to see the 
to move, and he'd come back, and he just said, book him, Mark. So he knew I was why I was enthusiastic, but we found out where Paul was, got a hold of him. Paul agreed to do it. He came in, we recorded it, and sent it up to George, and George said, absolutely, that's perfect voice. And that's how Pee Wee became the voice of uh, Rex. And in the deal he that ended up working out, he gets a silver pass for every year his voice is used. And I was thinking when they did the new version, uh, thought, well, he's going to go away. No, they ended up using bits and pieces of it in the in the Rex that's in the queue line. <laughs> yeah. So he still, he still gets his pass. That's well, awesome. also, they, they eventually had him come back to do Star Wars Rebels, the animated series, to do the same voice. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, but that doesn't work. I, well, maybe that, they folded that into a deal there, but he still gets his damn silver pass every year. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Next. So, so the the tone for when the announcements came along, um, give me a quick second. Cause I, actually, right. uh, I assume you're going to edit this. I will be. Yes. <laughs> um, oh, where did it go? Ah, here we go. How come he's asking all the questions? How did that tone come about? Wait, uh, Joe, what's his last name? Joe Harrington was our uh, sound designer. And he worked with uh, Gary uh, Rydstrom up at uh, Lucasfilm. And Gary Rydstrom basically did most of the sound effects for the movie. And he did the final mix. And uh, Ben Burt consulted. So, I mean, there were a lot of, this really was a classic, a lot of, I guess what you would call good people coming together to make a project work. And the egos really weren't in the way. Well, there was one incident, but I don't want to go into that. Um, and and unlike other some projects, this one really was a team. I mean, we would all sit down at times and go, well, I mean, we were we had a budget and we stuck to it. You know, we worked out, we were using Laserdisc for the audio reproduction in the thing. And those things were expensive, the players back then. You got so many audio tracks per disc. So we knew we had to have one per simulator cab because each had to operate independently, but we worked out how many did we really need for the soundtracks in the whole queue line area? Because if we had, if we went over so many tracks, we'd have to buy another Laserdisc player. Well, they weren't cheap. They were like a hundred grand back then for the kind we needed. So we worked, I mean, that's the kind of good detail, but yeah, still make it work creatively. We also wanted to make sure it worked creatively. So everything had to be built into the storyline. You have, you have to have the hydraulics essentially off on the simulator while you're loading and unloading. I mean, it's Though there's oil pressure, there's nothing's running to make the thing move. It's actually technically disconnected during load and unload. So we built that into the storyline. That's why you have to have that that lift uh, at the beginning and at the end so that the hydraulics can bring it up to an operating level. So I said, well, let's work that into the storyline. So everything that you saw from the moment you entered the door all had to be built in to suspend disbelief, but for whatever reasons. The way the queue line wrapped around partly was because that's what we wanted to try to preserve what we could in terms of using the space from the old Monsanto ride, but also it automatically created sound zones. So right. the queue line has three different sound zones, believe it or not. And um, that was part of it. And it was just one of those projects where everybody really came together as a team and really made the thing work. And the original Star Tours attraction at Disneyland cost $34 million, and that's everything. Wow. And my part that I'm responsible for, which is all the media, so that was anything you saw on a video screen or a film screen, and that's both creative talent producing the film, including two release prints per simulator and two release prints for the fake commercials, because that was a 70-millimeter projector, the laser disc themselves for the videos you saw in all the simulators and the ones that you see behind 
C-3PO, the cost of the talent for all the audio that you hear, including the orchestra, etc. All of that media, if you will, costs $3.4 million. Now, wow. think of that, guys. $3.4 million. Oh, yeah. and, and look where it's been used. I mean, do you think Disney got their money's worth? <laughs> oh, I think so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, that, so, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead Derek. Oh, you can go. Ah. <laughs> um, so, the guy with the headphones on my left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but we know you did a lot of the stuff with um, – it's awesome seeing that um, a lot of the way you describe this, it sounds a lot like a writer's room in a TV show with people throwing bo- stuff up on the board and figuring it out. Then you go from there to figure out what's going on. Um, what kind of stuff had to be um, – when you guys were designing the actual physical parts of the ride, how much of that did you guys have to totally invent or was it stuff that you actually were able to find elsewhere and repurpose for this? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Again, nobody done anything like this before. Um, so one of the things that was done very early on before we actually were sure we were doing a Star Wars thing was we bought a simulator platform just to play with and put it in the building out on the south side of uh, the 1401 building. We called it the Butler building and basically said, well, OK, let's start playing with this thing. And early on in the discussions, Tom and I actually sat down to talk about, well, who would program the motion base? And a guy by the name of Eric Swap, who's still working for Disney, he, he was one of the show programmers more for the technical side but he really loved things like motorcycles and movement and that kind of thing so we thought he would be the one to program it and that's what so that's what we decided that maybe he'd be the right one um weight is a concern the engineers uh mike mccullough uh, and and those guys all were like okay everything had to get weighed and a lot of times you know they would weigh everything they bought a really good scale and every little bolt that went up there got weighed and nothing got rounded down i mean they knew the weight of everything going on there so they knew the weight of the thing because you know you're trying to move 40 people plus this platform and all that uh initially we actually went and bought um eight airplane seats (laughs) (laughs) just so we'd have something to sit on and bolted them to the thing (laughs) and um very well bolted by the way and it was very weird riding on a and then got put together some footage of uh you know roller coasters and point of view of airplanes taking off so eric could play with it and all we had at the time was they then built a thing out of two by fours and black dubatine around it so that we could ride it and try not to see the fact that we were could potentially crash onto the concrete floor below as we were dipping around up and down and all that um which was very weird because one of the times we rode it uh the black dubatine came loose on the right side (laughs) so you're flying around and you're going oh shit there's the floor i'm going right at it and then come back up um so nobody done this before so the the only way you can figure out is you got to try stuff and you know there was even a big discussion of well should music be used in it because if you're a suspension of disbelief like you're flying on a jet you don't have music on a jet well now you do maybe but back then you didn't you just hear all the noise of the machine right and the pilot and all that so initially the thought was no music we're just going to have the noise you would hear and then it got into a discussion as we were getting the story was finally settling down and we were getting animatics from ILM and um, there was a discussion and Tony Baxter was there saying he wanted music through the whole thing and several of us myself included said no we don't want music through the whole thing and so but maybe it made sense to bring it in at some point and that's why if you recall the original there was no music until a certain point light speed to end or then boom you get music right um right. so again nobody knew what to do with these things uh 
Um, so the only way to do it was, you know, let's try stuff. There was even a push by Tony because it was in Tomorrowland, which is a weird thing. Here we are. We're doing something that's not really Tomorrowland based, but it's in Tomorrowland. And he wanted to use high def video projectors because it was located in Tomorrowland. And he and I had a pretty good battle about that one. Uh, he lost, um, which, of course, he still doesn't like me for that. But I was right. I mean, at the time, HD video, you know, this is 85. It, it, you, you put one of those on a thing and we'd already proven that the damn things couldn't stand up just on based on our tests. And uh, he wanted to put it in something that was going to have to run 16, 17 hours a day. It wasn't going to happen. So uh, that's why it ended up filmed. Though the film was projected at 30 frames a second. So uh, just different things. You know, I had to get make a deal with Anthony Daniels to be the voice of C-3PO. He was great. Not only did he spend a week with us, um, we videotaped him acting out C-3PO for the Q-Line and faithfully followed what and gave that to Davey Fight and the figure programmer and said, here, you got to follow this. And mm. So it was one of those projects. We we had these baskets that were um, full of junk, you know, to make the space look like it was a real maintenance queue line, getting crap off of ships. We wanted to give everybody credit. So uh, everybody got their initials and either their birth date or their telephone extension on each basket. And so mine was ME0827. And um, actually, when they were talking about the redo, which I had heard about a long time back, I actually sent Tom Fitzgerald a note and said, are you guys going to redo the queue space? Are you going to rework it or what's going to happen? Uh, what's going to happen to the baskets? And he said they weren't sure. And I said, well, if you decide you're not going to keep the baskets, is, could I possibly get mine? And then they decided that was such a good idea idea. He actually still had the list. They got the baskets down and everybody that was still alive or their heirs got their basket. Wow. I It's sitting right oh. next to me here on the floor because I don't know what to do with it still, but I have my basket <laughs> from Star Tours. That's um, awesome. Yeah. You know, it's one of those little inside things. It's kind of cool. So yeah. Whatever. Now, going from California where you're fighting for space to put the ride, what was it, what was it like when you then come to Florida or, or go to Tokyo and the space is, is there for you? Well, in Tokyo, they kind of put it in a, you know, once you've done the first one, I didn't really have to spend that much time on them from then on because what was decided was what was beyond the door where you enter the actual attraction, like the queue line, that became, that's what we're going to do everywhere. The only difference was in Florida, for example, they got six simulators so they could get more capacity. So that's all they really did. But because at the time, for example, in Florida, because it was this whole movie studio concept, that's why they put up the fake redwood forest and the walker out there. Right. In Tokyo, it was in Tomorrowland, and they wanted they needed more food facilities, so they had this space that was built at the same time called the Pizza Port that over there. Or in, I don't know what it was called in Japanese. And we actually had to shoot. Uh, I, I hired somebody to put together this thing where crap was going on on the screen that was only loosely related to Star Wars, but because it was part of this complex, you could kind of a- exit out of the shop and then if you wanted to go into this restaurant it had kind of a Star Warsy look to it and uh, but basically once I didn't have to do much of anything in terms of the other parks because it's the same show once you enter the door it's exactly the same other than you guys in Florida have six caps so mm-hmm. no space problems there uh, now overseas of course we had a, a consulting company that did the translations into Japanese and all of that stuff and we that for Japan that was a pretty straightforward process they, they, the way they do things is they would take the English script, translate it into Japanese. Then the Japanese would come back and we'd have somebody translate 
the Japanese to into English to see if it fairly well followed. And then they had a gentleman from over there, and I don't remember his name anymore. I know he passed away, who would come over and then basically for a few hours go through the script with him, make sure if there's any glaring differences for what the storyline be he would he he we would adjust them in person and then they would go off and record the japanese version and we always had uh the separation tracks so we always had the dialogue separate from the music and the effects tracks. so it was real easy to remix and we just left that to the audio guys once we signed off on the uh, translations pretty much people knew what they were doing why do you need to be there so it was pretty straightforward it's the first one that's always difficult <laughs> <laughs> so when, when you uh after going through all that when the first one was up and running, did you have any idea uh, of what you had, or were you were you just call it my naivete? I felt we had a really gangbuster, groundbreaking attraction that people were going to love, and this was before anybody had been in it besides test subjects, and that included family members. Uh, on a family day, we let them ride the simulator in the butler cabin because we wanted to know: well, is this, are we going too far? Too, not enough, etc. And act, oddly enough, Thomas Gerald had the weakest stomach of the bunch so he was our puke factor indicator which was another concern um yeah you know how many and and we actually had to tone it down after it opened because they would the ops folks would measure how many pukes they would get per hour and it yeah i know that's a weird thing yeah it's a, that's an interesting chart yeah it actually makes a whole lot of sense it does yeah, but it does. it's odd yeah we had to we had to get it down to uh i think when it after the first uh few weeks of operation we had like a not a good puke factor because you know Know, when somebody pukes in the cab, you have to clean it up, and it smells. Yeah. Uh, so we were over. We were at like 1.2 per hour puke factor, and they go, "That's way too high." And I, I wouldn't disagree with them. So they had to kind of tweak it some to tone it down, just to lower the puke factor to something more like 0.2 per hour. Um, it's odd that there would be an acceptable. <laughs> well, there isn't an acceptable. You don't want anybody to throw up, but at least it got it down to something that there was nobody knew what it was going to be. That was manageable, yeah. Right. Yeah, um, much more manageable. Here's when I knew we had a success. Um, hello, whoever that is. Um, That's my pup. So because we weren't going to open because of Captain EO, they decided, well, in case there's any other little things we need to fix, why don't we open it one day just for a couple hours and let people ride it and we'll see how they react. That, okay, let's do that. It wasn't really actually quite finished yet, and we were down to a minimum crew because we knew it wasn't going to open for about another seven, eight months at that point. So we had a couple of cabs with a version of the print, not the absolute final, but it was really close. And we had the queue line running. We even had those fake commercials with the weird screen running, and that was a fun thing to do. Um, and didn't you know there was no internet back then? We just opened it, and George flew down. At the time, he chopped off his beard, and they kept looking for him. And I'm out in the queue line watching the fake commercials because I produced those and this guy shows up with no beard and he goes yeah i really like those have a nice look to them and make the space feel right and then it took me a minute to realize oh this is george and everybody else like marty sklar and randy bright and carl Ben journal and tom Fitzgerald, they're all wondering where the hell is george and i've got him in there at any rate after he, yeah he gets there and we first rode the thing on our own just because this was the first time going through the whole space with george and then uh, opened the doors and we all kind of went around and rode it with people just to to see how they were reacting to it, then got on the exit side and then just decided, well, let's just stand out here and listen to reaction, right? So one of the cabs, we had two of them running, the cab, the doors open and people come out. One of the guys coming out says, can you imagine how many miles of track
Scott Disney had to build underneath their park for this ride? (laughs) 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 Oh, that's cool, man. Okay, so then another, the second cab opens up, and I'm like the only idiot wearing my name tag, right? Even though I had a beard at the time, I'm wearing my name tag, and the guy walks up to me, excuse me, he doesn't recognize George Lucas, because George, without his beard, nobody knows what he looks like. And he goes, excuse me. I go, yeah, did, did you work on this? Well, yeah, just a little. Tell me something. Well, what's that? You don't really go anywhere, do you? <laughs> and I think I knew at that point, yeah, we'd done it. And uh, that's a good feeling to know that people really buy into something that you've done. Yeah, it must be. You know. Well, before you got to that point, back when you guys were first throwing around the ideas of possibly using Star Wars, well, when you were designing it, Star Wars was still huge. But um, by the time you get to 87, Star Wars was starting to wane a little bit. Did you guys have any worries about when this opened before you got any of the crowd reactions? Did you have any worries about this maybe not doing as well because Star Wars was pretty much on the downturn? Well, I remember it only been a couple of years since um, The Return of the Jedi had been out. And, and this is yeah. back when movies, unlike nowadays, movies, you know, after four weeks, it's hard to find them in a movie theater. Back then, movies ran for sometimes a year and a half. You could still find it in a theater. It was still very popular. Um, you didn't have DVDs back then. You were lucky if something came out on a laser disc. So it was really actually going to be coming up on being shown on cable. So we weren't worried because it was so, I mean, I, I mean I'm old enough to, I, you know, I went to see the first Star Wars movie and I went to get a ticket at 10 a.m. with a group of others and was lucky to get tickets for the 10.30 p.m. show and was last in line for that one. That's how popular the thing was and because of the way it was done. And I don't think people these days have any concept of what that was like unless you lived it. And it was yeah. an incredible thing. And when it opened, I mean, there was a 60-hour party and the line was like hours long, uh, the original one at Disneyland, that is. And people just, they had to run a queue line through the hub back and forth. And it was like the first time they ever used tape to create a queue line. It was, <laughs> it was, it was just mind-blowing how the reception that it had. The, the downside was that Randy and I had had the notion that, you know, because of the length, that, okay, we en- only ended up supposedly going to Endor and never got there. So the idea was every three years we'd do a new film and add to the library. That way, part of the original idea of the simulator was you wouldn't get the same experience each time. Well, the damn thing was so popular for so long that we never made another film. So when they finally were able to do the digital projection and do the multiple choice, so to speak, I'm extremely happy that they were able to do that because that was the original intent was you wouldn't necessarily get the show each time, same show each time. So it works. People people still go on it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, well, keeping keeping with the the Lucasfilm franchise, did you do... Were you involved any with the Indiana Jones ride that's in California? No, because uh, that was more just a ride, uh, not really a film. I was mostly film and video, and that was actually built after I left. Um, They started on it before I left, but I left in 93. Um, No, but I was involved in, there's things, I mean, if you go to Disneyland, there are two things left that have my handprint on them that haven't changed at all. I was the one who had to pick the Mickey Mouse films that run in the Main Street Cinema because the silence that were running there all of a sudden they realized they might have to start paying licensing fees to run them so Randy Bright asked me to pick out Mickey Mouse films to run in there and they're still there and I oversaw the posters for that and the only other thing that's still there that my handiwork is of is uh, and you actually have it in Florida uh, you know the shadow animation effect of Br'er Fox top of the lift in Splash Mountain yes yes I produce that oh Oh, wow it's just it's it's a throwaway gag but it was part of the story and they insisted we had to have it so I said okay it's an animated thing Dale Bear animated it actually and wasn't complicated to do it's just I produced that 
So that's the only two things left of mine at Disneyland that are still there. And up until about a year and a half ago, uh, I also worked on Muppet Vision 3D. And when they put it in out here, which is way after I left, um, you know, it's just like Star Tours. It was pick it up, put it down. It's same same attraction. What are you going to do? What's inside the box? It's got to be the same. So. Now, Next you, you, you said you were involved uh, with Epcot. Is there anything still at Epcot that's got your, your handiworks on it? Uh, the Golden Dream sequence of American Adventure I redid before I left in 93. It stayed the same. It was still the same in 97. And it was still the same in 2007 when I visited. Yeah. They hadn't changed it for 9-11. In 2008, they added the 9-11 scenes, but they basically took a few scenes out, a couple of shots out to replace it. So it's essentially the same. And I did that that particular version, which has a longer version of the Golden Dream song. Uh, I finished in uh, early 93. Uh-huh. Yeah, it is still there. I was post-production for most of uh, Epcot. So like the France film, they haven't changed a thing. Um, right. They, you know, it's exactly the same. Um, when we were down there in January, which was my first trip in 10 years, we, we went around. I didn't get into energy, so I don't think I missed anything. Um, I know China had changed. There's some new scenes and they redid the script and yeah. It was interesting to me watching the China film because there's parts of it that are the same shots and they use the same same music. And I can tell where the music we did for Epcot is and the music that they re-recorded is. I think the original music has a crisper sound to it. Um, Canada, they, they redid with the Martin Short thing. And um, basically, most of the footage, Circle Vision shots are shots that were shot for the film way back in 1981, 80 and 81. So uh, Mexico boat rides changed completely. Um, you know, I don't, that's fine. The original was kind of weird. Of course, this one's kind of weird. Um, <laughs> Norway, there used to be a film that nobody watched, uh, which is fine. I, I have to tell you, and you can get mad at me all you want. I think the frozen boat ride is incredible. They did a great job. Um, we can have an argue about argue about the semantics of does it belong there or not, but I got to tell you that they, they did a really good job with the the ride. I mean, you, the figures look great. They're timed right with the boats, and I rode it a couple of times. So I was impressed with the new wave of Imagineers that are really kind of doing things now. Um, the land boat ride, I didn't. Well, they they had that silly stuff that's in what's called the barn section of the boat ride. That's right. still the same. That's still the same footage that from when I was a post production supervisor. So that kind of there. I mean, it's who cares, you know. Um, that's about it. Uh, everything else has pretty much gone through a changeover in Future World. Um, yeah. You know, uh, one way or another. Um, so that's all changed. Magic Kingdom, we'll see that Muppet Vision's running over at the studios. Yeah. And I was I was the producer on that. That was Star Tours was two and a half years of my life. Muppet Vision was almost two years. Um, let's so, see. So I gotta Go ask, ahead. what was it like working with Jim Henson on that? A joy. The guy would listen to you. He wouldn't always agree with you, but he would listen to you and give you reasons why or why not. I have to say when I saw it in Florida, I was very disappointed they're not keeping it up very well. There used to be red curtains in front of the screen yeah. before the film would start. What happened to those when they redid the screen? Um, the chef in the back, I don't think he even works. And I think when they redid the screen, they didn't perforate it right because the sound from the it's, speakers it's behind the screen... Yeah, not my imagination. I don't think... Because the screen has is actually supposed to be perforated. So I wonder when they changed the digital projectors, did they go with you know, unperforated screens, and if so, you're not going to understand the sound very well. And I didn't. Um, and I worked hard to make sure that had an excellent sound system. Yeah, um, I, re- I remember before the digital screens, it sounded great. Um, first time we took my daughter, it's like my wife and I both looked at each other. Sounds a little odd. Sounds different. 
Well, and you don't have the curtain at the beginning either now, I don't think. Or at least it didn't run my day there. Is the curtain in front of the screen that opens before um, the film? I don't remember. Well, if you get over there, let me know sometime. I'd be, cause it did, uh, it, when you, it used to be there was an actual red curtain, and then right. it was a big deal to me that the first projected curtain had to be red, so it looked the same as the real curtain when it opened up. And I had to work that out with Jim. So I don't know. Um, I mean, it's good that the Sweetums character still walks out. At least they didn't cut that. Um, True. Now, with, with Henson... Um, Muppet Vision being his his last real project that he was physically working on. It's the last film he shot for. Um, what? How is it? Was he just that stubborn that when people said, "Hey, you need to go rest," he just didn't want to do it? I I don't know if he was stubborn. My understanding is he never wanted to be a bother to anybody, and I guess he was just sick and he never wouldn't go anywhere to go see a doctor or anything. I mean, had he gone, he probably would have been fine. They would have given him a shot of penicillin or something because he basically had pneumonia. Right. As it turned out, I, I mean, he'd been we hadn't had him around for a while and he really was going to sign the contract and then he died. And then it became this whole problem with the kids. Yeah. And um, I, I want to say it was mainly Brian that had the issues with no, it. I, well, no, there's more to it, but I can't talk on the record about it without getting sued. Uh, <clears throat> I, I just know we don't want that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that it wasn't Brian. It was Lisa Henson, who was over at Warner Brothers at the time. That was so the real problem. It's a real shame, though. It took a long time, and then Brian actually kind of liked the idea, but um, you know, we got done with the project, and it was done, and we couldn't do anything. We basically said, well, it's done. Couldn't show it to anybody, and then Michael Eisner finally got Brian Henson to come down, and they ran the show for him, and he said it'd be a shame if we couldn't at least get the rights to run this, and that's when at least they got the rights for that. Um, there was a internecine war going on within the kids as to who was going to run what. I mean, if you saw the D23 Legends thing uh, a few years ago and you noticed that both Lisa and Brian were on stage together, that kind of tells you something, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I know it was the the other son that I met when they did the mosaic of Jim at studios for the Hall of Fame. Uh-huh. Um, I don't remember if Lisa was there or not. Lisa was at Warner Brothers. She was a vice president at the time. And um, I really can't talk about it. You can read it into the fact that she was at Warner Brothers when Jim died. And hopefully you can do your two plus two and figure out why things didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> and why Lisa was on the stage with Brian at the D23 event and had nothing to do. That's all I'll say. So, <laughs> <laughs> See, the difference between the, the difference between the Brian and Lisa thing is similar to, to the difference between Walt and Roy. Only Roy knew he didn't have the creative talent. Are you picking up on what I'm saying? Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, yep. Okay. Interesting. Let's move on. That's a good idea, I think. <laughs> when, when they announced they're shutting down Star Tours and they're going to do Star Tours, the adventure continues. Were, were you brought back in a freelance role no. to help consult I, on any of it? No, because I, in 97, I went into journalism as career two, if you will. Uh, I was actually at an Orange County news channel, a 24-hour news channel based out of Orange County, California. 
And I had kind of done some freelance. I actually freelanced for four years after I left Disney. And then in 97, I had taken some time off. And when I was going to get back into it, the financial bubble in Asia popped. And at the time, that was where all the work was. And I'd already started working some at uh, the Orange County News Channel because I was fascinated by the concept of 24-hour news. And I loved it. And so I was in journalism. And uh, it shut down three days before 9-11, oddly enough. Um, But I stayed in touch with people at the Register, which is where the studios for OCN was housed, and eventually started working with them. And yeah, journalism, you don't make a lot of money, but I get to write stuff. And uh, I, I really wanted to be a writer when I left school. And I was I'd done that some in the theme park world, but here I could write every day. And I enjoy that. And uh, I started on freelancing for the Register in late 2003, and eventually got on as a staff reporter covering Coto do Casa, which is where the Real Housewives of Orange County got their start. And I was there when that, that, that started. Coto do Casa by the way, is the Walt Disney World of HOAs, okay? And people ask me, well, why is that? And I go, well, it's just as big as Walt Disney World. I go, okay. And like Disneyland, it has a berm around it, the mountains that are around this big private development, right? Right. And it has themed lands because as different areas were developed, they had different looks to it. It has all the recreation of Walt Disney World, golfing, horseback riding, swimming, hiking, all of that. It has castles because there's a lot of rich people there. (laughs) And of course, this is when the Real Housewives started up. So and I go, and it has a whole lot of weird characters, many of whom are plastic. (laughs) (laughs) Real Housewives of Orange County, you know what I'm saying, guys. Oh, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I started working for the Register as a staff reporter in 2006, and I started getting a couple of calls from people saying, hey, you know, they they're started work on a redo of Star Tours. Well, cool. That's nice. I hope you can do something with it that'll be more adventurous than we were able to do in terms of the making things different. And uh, I was not covering Disney at the time, but I let the reporter who was know that they were doing it. The Register's policy, though, is we don't report rumors. We report facts when they're announced. So even though I knew it, I couldn't. I'm in a tough spot because I, if I report the fact and who told it to me, they would lose their job. I'm right. not going to do that. Right. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not mice chat guys. Okay. I do <laughs> listen to the rumors, but unless it's announced or they will tell me factually this is happening, I'm not going to report a rumor because sometimes the rumors are false deliberately. That's gotten a couple. I know it got one key Imagineer in a lot of trouble. Um, at any rate, um, but I know it was being done because I knew the guy was working on it. Um, he's now retired, but he and I had worked together on the original, and he was on the projection side. And um, he was going to retire, but they kept him around because they were working out the technical specs for the digital projection. So they wanted that. You know, they knew people wanted to do new things with the film. I don't care. I just like the fact that it's not the same show every time. I think it's cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. I know. I think it's really cool. Um in 2009, I was moved to our North Bureau at the time, which was based in Anaheim. And instead of saying Mark can't cover Disney because the old school journalists say, well, he worked for him for so long, and we're not sure it's a good idea having him. My attitude was, as long as I'm very open about it, who cares? Now the school of thought is, let Mark keep covering Disney because he gets stories nobody else can get because of his background. And I'm not trying to be an egotist on this, but the fact is, I get behind the scenes stories that they won't let anybody else do because of my background as an Imagineer. So I can shoot video if, if they agree to it. For example, this 
last Christmas, I did shot video and photos inside It's a Small World while they were doing the changeover to the Christmas version. Wow. Now, they've never allowed anybody to do that. Think about that. I've shot video uh, in the Jungle Cruise when they were pruning the trees, etc., and they just let me stomp around the island on there to shoot a story about how the Jungle Cruise has turned into its own ecology. <laughs> when they were doing Cars Land, I talked to Kathy Mangum. Again, I've known a lot of these people for a long time, and I said, you know, the real story of Cars Land is the rock work. I mean, that incredible vista of rock work is something. And I said, that's the story we need to tell. She agreed. So I came in one day when they had part of the rock work done and part of it was still basically steel structure, wore a hard hat, and they let me just stomp around and shoot the rock work and the steel structure from inside, outside, upside down, you name it, and did a story about that. They wouldn't let anybody else even touch that. And I didn't have to use Disney staff. I shot this on my own. And that's because of my background. They know I'll show it in a way, I'll show the behind the scenes, but in a way that doesn't give away everything. That's right. why you'll never see me, unless it's a story, I will Will never show an undressed AA figure. Why do you want to see that? Unless it's the story. I don't sneak backstage to try to shoot things on people. I do a lot of stories. You know, I do a monthly update on what's going on at the theme parks out here. You know, like everybody else, you can go to the top of Mickey and Friends and you can shoot right into the Star Wars land. Well, I do that too. I don't try to walk behind a fence to shoot anything like some of the people have and getting blackballed and kicked out. Right. Not to say I won't take a photo through a crack in the fence. I have. <laughs> but I'm doing it from the guest point of view. Uh, I guess the best story to tell about that was back in 20, 2009, 2010. They drained the rivers of America, which they do every seven years just to clean it up, do any repairs you can't do because it's underwater, right? And they do that every seven years or so. Which, oddly enough, it's seven years and they've drained it again. Well, back half. They're going to drain the front half in a, about another month. That way they can get everything working right. Um, but I said, hey, we ought to, I went over there and called them and said, hey, we ought to do a story about, you know, let me show what you're doing inside the river. I mean, you can kind of see it. And they actually said, no. I'm like, why not? We just don't want to tell that story. You've kind of done it in the past. The difference is I wanted to shoot video. Well, I actually kind of got mad at them. They wouldn't let me, and I'd already done a couple behind-the-scenes things. So I said, well, I'm going to do a story anyway. And he said, well, you can. So I actually went over the next morning taking two cameras, a small tourist video-type camera, kind of like GoPros now, but we didn't have one then. And my, I had a good Nikon, and I rode the train like six times around the park, right? And as we're going through that part of the rivers of Frontierland, they don't screen it off from the train. So, you know, the guys are out there working in the dry riverbed. I'm just snapping away with an icon, hoping I get something and shoot in with my other hand. I'm holding the video camera each trip around. <laughs> then I go up to the top of the treehouse and I shoot stuff with a zoom lens and all that. So I get back and I work on it. And the next morning, the story posts with video and like 50 slides of the dry riverbed and all this stuff. I think 10 minutes after the story posted, the phone rings and it's Susie Brown and she's the director of uh, media relations and corporate media whatever, right? Nice lady, and we have a good relationship. But she goes, I go, this is Mark E. She goes, so Mark, I see you've been busy. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, well, I told you I'd do a story. And she goes, yeah, we probably should have maybe let you in. Because <laughs> <laughs> I wrote that I, I shot all these. I said, I didn't do anything wrong. I shot from where the guests can see it. She goes, yeah, we know. And we're sorry. And I go, okay, well, how about a kiss and make up? Well, let's think about that. 
So, you know, they had kind of done a massive, not a massive, but they redid a lot of the stuff you see on the river for that. So three days before they opened the river up to guest traffic, they called me up and said, how'd you like to go on a raft all the way around the rivers of America? And I was the only one. <laughs> wow. Because I realized, maybe we need to be nice to Mark. Because he knows <laughs> Susie said I'm dangerous, but in a good and a bad way. I know too much. So it's really odd now it's gotten to that point where I hear something. I call them and maybe they're not ready to announce it yet. But I go, you know, this is going to come out. You probably ought to just confirm it. And there's been a few things here and there where they've realized, okay, we we better get the story out and let's get it to Mark because he really knows what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was looking at um, our blackout days for for the different parks here. And I saw near the end of May, oh, we're blacked out Animal Kingdom. Uh, my wife goes, all the other parks are open, but blacked out Animal Kingdom in the, in the May. I'm like, yeah, Avatar is opening. Yeah. Two weeks later is I, when the announcement comes out. Uh, Avatar is opening May 27th. I was like, right. see, told you. I tried <laughs> right there. To, and, and they actually tried, but they just the, whoever the VP is of the Animal Kingdom did not want to. Uh, well, he was on vacation the week I was on business down there because I two weeks there, one week was doing travel stories. But I really tried hard to get a preview of the land. And uh, Road Joe Rody got in my corner, but they just said no. They weren't going to let me in. And uh, I was a little miffed about that to be honest. But the Florida folks don't know me as well as Disneyland does. And they, yeah. when I got back, they called me and said, we really pushed to try to let them know how important you are and to let you in there. But they just weren't having it. Florida's really its own. You guys down there are your own thing. I know you were yeah. used to running Disneyland too. And thank God you're not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, for the way the way things are talked about backstage here, everyone's a little upset that California is running us a little bit more than well I'd, than everyone likes. I'd, well, that's that's because of Chapek. Yeah, um, uh, went too far. I, I'll say that um, trying to be one thing everywhere just doesn't work because out here it's a different audience than than there because yeah. of all the APers. Um, and yeah, sometimes people accuse me of having a hate hateful relationship with the APers. I don't. I just some of them are nuts, <laughs> to be blunt. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, the thing that gets me out here is, you know, here's an example. Uh, I knew once I knew where Star Wars land was going to be that they were going to have to tear down some things that, you know, needed to get out of the way. And that included the Skyway Chalet that had been sitting empty for 22 years at that point, right? Right. And... So I figured it out, and then I called Disney, and they finally said, oh, well, we better let Mark run with this story. So they get, they confirmed it, and I wrote a story about how the Fantasyland station, the Skyway, was going to finally be torn down, and it hadn't been used in 22 years. Oh, you would have thought it was the coming of second coming of Christ or something to some people, that they're tearing this building down, this beloved building that nobody could go in. And then one guy, is, he, he, he goes by the name of Rob Von Roll, and he claims he's part of the Von Roll family, which built the Skyway. And he was so mad about it that the story, I put this, you know, you post these stories in various Facebook groups. Well, he apparently was an administrator in one of the groups, and he not only took it out, but he kicked me out of the group. I didn't know. I didn't give a crap, you know. Well, that's because he didn't want 
want the story to get out. And then he didn't like the fact that I'd written the story. Well, it's a fact. It, uh, it's not rumor. It's a fact. It's going right. away. So he actually tried to get the city of Anaheim to declare it a historical landmark and started a petition and all this stuff. If you know anything about that building, you know, one, it can't be moved because he said, well, you could just pick it up and move it. You don't understand how it's built. Two, if you know enough inside people, you knew that the structure itself was not what you would call structurally sound anymore. Yeah. Um, certain little bugs had gotten in it and been in it for a while. Um, and I also knew the reasons they needed to take it out because there's a tunnel underneath that structure, et cetera, that, um, where there was access for emergency vehicles. And they actually needed to make it bigger because it wasn't up to code for modern emergency access codes. So they had to tear it down just so they could rip everything out and put a bigger access way in there because that's one of the emergency access points for Disneyland. And, you know, if you want to get into the center of the park, that's one of the places they can get in at. And it's like, yeah, it needs to go away. And who cares? I mean, the building hasn't been used. It's hidden behind trees. But they made a big deal about it, and then the administrators of that group let me back in, and he was still trash-talking the story. He was trash-talking me. Why are you trash-talking me? I'm I'm right. I'm telling you what's going to happen. And I finally just took myself out of the group because it's like you don't like someone who's telling you the facts. And I don't write rumors, and I don't snark in my articles. I write straight on purpose. I don't want anybody to accuse me of anything. Doesn't mean I won't comment with a point of view in Facebook, but I'll write the facts. And if it's an issue story, I'll write both sides. But frankly, the chalet being torn down is it's being torn down he even sent me an email saying you should have interviewed me and it's like well one i didn't know how to get a hold of him and two why <laughs> yeah for what for what for what purpose that you're going to go off on a tirade about how disney shouldn't be doing this we get enough of that on facebook and comments alone so we don't need yeah. an interview about this and uh, it, it kind of fascinates me that, you know, and every time something, it's these people out here, every time something changes, they want change. They want new stuff, right? But then Disney's going to go in and change something to make, because what's there isn't popular. And it's, oh, my God, Walt's rolling over in his grave. <laughs> it, 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 it's, the, it's the same way here. It, yeah. Power of hair, you know, right? They're, they're taking it out and replacing it with Guardians of the Galaxy. And all of a sudden, now Tower of Terror, until the rumors and everything started happening, was down to at worst a 20-minute wait out here because it's not as good as the one in Florida, to yeah. be honest. And I worked on that one. Um, and that's still a great ride with all the stuff. It's but amazing. It's, it's, I love it. But, you know, out here, after you do the little pre-show room with the, the fake Rod Serling and all that, you exit that and you go into the boiler room and there's nothing to look at you just that's all and you it's just a yeah. line it's a queue space and not a nothing to look at other than the dusty boilers on purpose so i'm sitting here going guardians of galaxy will be cool because you know now there's going to be all kinds of fun stuff to look at while you're waiting to get on the damned elevator and then people go oh well now you're going to see it behind the carthay restaurant i'm going so you can see the matterhorn from places you really shouldn't be able to see it in disneyland too what's your problem people i can see space mountain from the swiss family robinson tree house Walt Disney World for yeah. example you know anyway okay uh, <laughs> <laughs> people get too uptight about things sometimes yeah. come on guys it's a theme park right you're supposed to have fun yeah exactly uh, now what what's your take of um what is being turned into Star Wars land at California at Florida well in Florida I mean let's face it that park needed anything oh um, yeah you, you had in theory a tram tour that only had really one thing worth seeing Catastrophe Canyon, a bunch of fake, never really in movie stuff, and I do, I did like the car, the stunt car show it was a really good show. Um, I guess they come sometimes had problems with it, but but other than that, the park doesn't have anything. I mean. 
So All that right. park needed help. So I don't. You're losing Catastrophe Canyon. Well, so what? It's, it's been dead for a while anyway. Yeah. Now, uh, one, yeah. Once you lost the stunt show came in, it was like, oh, we're gonna go past here into the canyon and back out. There, there's no residential street to support it anymore. Right. And all the other behind the scenes stuff that was supposedly part of it was gone anyway. Yeah. So I think it's perfect for down there at Disneyland. Um, part of me, I understand what they're trying to do, um, and it'll be really well done. Part of me goes, why the hell didn't you put this over at California Adventure? Because DCA got a really good attendance pop with Cars Land, but it could have used another. It could, it could still have more attendance. Um, and I guess their strategic decision was that because I, I, as near as I can tell, the strategic decision, well, Star Wars is already kind of at Disneyland, so let's put it over there, was the direction. That was an early on direction, I guess. And we'll eventually take Marvel to DCA. Okay, fine. And then they were wrestling around a lot, from my understanding, with where to put Star Wars stuff. There was a lot of discussions. Part of it was it, they, they actually were going to put it in Tomorrowland, but it wasn't going to be big enough for what they were wanting it to be. And as it kept growing and growing, it was like, well, where the hell are you going to put it? And part of the problem is, if you, you know, Disneyland was built originally in 1954, 55, right? And a lot of these additions were done, even with Small World. The kind of the expansion to the size the railroad is or was now was done in the 60s. So where do you put a massive project looking at the impacts to everything? And you can't, they could have taken the sub right out and the Atopia out and even, frankly, the Monterey out a lot of people would cry but it wouldn't be missed um, but you also have to deal with the fact and this is something I learned a few years ago if you build a capital project your capital expenditure has a certain lifespan and you amortize that capital cost over however many years and you usually they say well the usually they'll amortize the cost of something over about 10 years okay now if you suddenly get rid of something before that 10 years is up it actually is a major hit on the bottom line from an accounting standpoint I don't quite understand it, but basically you have to now eat the entire cost in one year. The submarine ride, when they redid it, was over $200 million. You want to amortize the hell out of that. You don't want to eat $200 million in one year. So that was part of the driving factor for not putting it in Tomorrowland, from what I understand, was because it would have really, frankly, been a pretty good hit on the theme park side. And then they were looking at the spaces and realized that the space that they put it, for the most part, didn't have that many significant infrastructure impacts, because that's the other problem with Tomorrowland is there's a lot of stuff above, under, there's a lot of infrastructure impacts that would have added to the cost. So putting it where they did, not a lot of infrastructure. Part of it was a ranch. So what's that? Dirt. Um, they actually had the original roundhouse was over there. So a little bit there, but not that much. The only major infrastructure issues they had to deal with, for the most part, were some telephone lines and uh, the plumbing. Because if you understand Disneyland, you know that the water for what used to be the motorboat cruise, the the moat in front of the castle, the jungle cruise, the storybook land, and the rivers of America are all interconnected. And the water actually starts up at the motorboat cruise and then flows through, some of it flows into the moat and down the moat into jungle cruise, and the rest flows through storybook land and then to the top, the north end of the rivers of America, then down the rivers of America and into jungle cruise, where it's sucked out, sent back for filtration, etc. So they had to deal with some of that, and that's why it took them about three months just dealing with that. But from a 
hey, let's build a 14-acre project, it was probably the best place to put it. So I can live with it. And if you think about it, there's been nothing new at Disneyland on a major standpoint since Indiana Jones was added way back in the 90s. So more than 20 years. I had actually one another question that um, we I mentioned earlier how um, they used Paul Rubens on Rebels. Are you familiar? Have you um, watched the Star Wars Rebels show at all? No, I have not. I've I'll probably seen, okay. I've seen a couple of them, but I wouldn't be surprised. Why not? Okay. He's well, talented. they actually, um, I was just going to get your opinion if you'd seen it about um, them. They actually used your um, speeder, oh, the cruiser, actually on the show as a transport between planets. Cool. And used Rex as the pilot. Cool. That'd be bitching. Good for him. But we did something that made it went the other way. There's been a lot more of that. Let's see. We've got Pirates became movies. Haunted Mansion, they made one. Terrible, but they're going to try again. Country Bears. Now there's one on Jungle Cruise. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And then somebody even said they, they're thinking about trying to do something based on Small World. I'm not sure I want to sit through that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Tomorrowland was kind of hard to sit through. I mean, I enjoyed it, but that it was, it was, it was a stretch. I haven't a, seen that one. Oh, that one was kind of like, I put that in the same place I put like Battleship, where it was a decent movie if they hadn't tried to tie it into something that's already out there that had nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was... Uh, it just the story wasn't there. It just wasn't good. The, the surprises were so cliche. I mean, they had a few surprises that were really pretty good, and I, I and all of that. I did love the look of the movie. It had a kind of a Technicolor look to it. Yeah. Uh, but it just, yeah, just didn't work. Mm-hmm. That's the bottom line. Didn't work. <laughs> uh. Before we let you go, where can people find you on the internet, um, or, or, or if they want to read your your great articles? Well, the best thing to do is you can do a site search uh, on Google. Type uh, ocregister.com and Mark Eads. My last name is spelled E A D E S, and usually the stuff will pop up. Um, you can also type in Disney and Mark Eads, and most of the stuff will pop up. I have my own website, but I don't really do anything on it anymore. Uh, so so it's just I pay a couple hundred dollars a year to keep it alive. Uh, but so that's the best way. Um, I, I mean, I work for the Orange County Register, which is part of now of Digital First Media and all the stuff's on there. And uh, that's probably the best way. Like the article for Celebrate Gospel today, it's there. Awesome. Uh, well, and, every, and everything I write goes online. You know, it's all digital first. I may be 62, uh, but I love new things. I'm, I, I like to think I'm more like a lot of Imagineers who like to try new things. I'm not stuck in the past. Cool. Awesome. That's well, awesome. Thank, thank you for coming on. Oh, no problem. Uh, it, it's Good been time. a blast. Of, you know, I love getting some some backstory to one of my favorite rides, and of course, w- one of my favorite genres was, was Star Wars, and, and hearing how um, Star Tours came about. Well, oh, thank you. I'm hey. glad you... How many times have you ridden it? Uh, <laughs> before... Before now, how the, many trips to Endor? How many trips to Endor did you make? <laughs> trips to Endor. Uh, once I started working with the company, because I started off at studios. Oh, okay. Uh, I worked on the Hunchback show. Uh, oh. Was the first show I I worked on. Cool. We lunch break. There was a couple of us would go over, and we probably get three four rides in during oh, lunch. Man. I'd be throwing up. <laughs> um, that that's the only downfall I have is the 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 simulators are too warm. There's not enough AC in them, or they're not cool enough really? in them. Yeah. So the, well, the should be. we we have a big old honking hose that supposedly keeps them cool, but maybe Florida they don't do as good a job. 
job. I don't know. I, I don't think they do because I, I still come out slightly overheated. When then once I get overheated, I'm like, okay, I'm now done for the day because I, I, I start to hit that queasy moment because of <laughs> being overheated I, in the room. I rode Mission Space this time. The first 10 years ago, I didn't take the, the, the vomit comet side. I said, okay, I'm 62. This time I'll do it, right? So I rode the hardcore side this time. Um, I did it. It's I'm intense. never going to do that again. It's, it's intense. intense. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever ridden the, uh, the non-vomit comet side of Mission Space. Well, I did it this time just because I said, well, if I don't do it this time, I'll never be able to do it in my life. So I did it, and it it, it, it took me about an hour to really feel like, okay, I'm all right now. I didn't throw up or anything. I, I think if it had lasted another 20 seconds, I probably would have. Yeah. Probably, but, I mean, I you can feel it in your head, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I've heard people say, don't look left, don't look right. I'm like, oh. Oh, yeah. That's that's not the issue. <laughs> I, I could do that okay. Uh, what gets me on mission space is the the landing. It, it's such a hard bounce initially. I'm like, okay, this kind of hurts, and with that no, jostle, it's, it's the um, thrusting, and, and you feel everything in your yeah. face going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well. Listen, so, I've had a good time. I gotta sign off because I've got to uh, do a little writing work here tonight. Yet, so I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this. Oh, oh yeah, oh definitely. yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for again. Yeah. Thank you for coming on and. Uh, until next time. Give the evacuation code signal. All right, cut the chatter. Jinx, I can hold it. Pull up! No, I'm all right. I have placed information vital to the survival of the rebellion into the memory systems of this R2 unit. I've lost R2. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> <laughs>